Live from Pacific Junction Hotel, Girth Radio in session. Oh, hold on. Sorry, episode five. My name is Kareem Kanji. Thank you for joining me today. Finally, my guest helps companies grow revenue and compete to win by embracing social media and social selling strategies. But before his social media life, he sold cars and made movies. Uh, please welcome uh, to the studio Andrew Jenkins. Hi, everybody. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank, thank you. you for your patience. We've been here like half an hour <laughs> trying to trying to get things set up. My pleasure. It was worth the wait. Yeah, enjoying your drink. Yes, I am. Awesome. How do you like my studio? It's lovely. It's very um, bohemian. Yeah, this is my. <laughs> I call it my studio. Um, you ever <laughs> listen to CBC Radio? Occasionally. You know, they, they have guests on, and the guests might be like in New York City, or they mm-hmm. might be in London, or wherever it is that they are. And they always say, you know, from uh, from our studios in London. I go, really? Does CBC have studios in London? And then I figure, no, they're renting some sort of space, and they're renting a mic yes, in, in somewhere. I don't know, in BBC or in, in public radio. But um, you are like you are, according to LinkedIn, which is uh, the professional internet. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are like one of the top influencers when it comes to social selling. But before, way before then, back when the uh, the Jays were winning World Series, mm-hmm. uh, you were in movies or something. Yes. Yeah. I, I have a degree in film production, and I worked in the film and television industry before I went to film school, uh, and worked in the industry uh, afterward as well. Uh, made a, a holiday movie with Mickey Rooney called Home for Christmas. Um, if you look closely... That sounds like a popular movie. Uh, it was made for TV. From okay. A, for those of you in Canada who know CHCH Channel 11 yes. in Hamilton, the people behind uh, that TV station were some of the producers. Uh, and so it was a you know kind of a Hallmark feel holiday movie with Mickey Rooney. Um, and how old was... That was this was made in nineteen. The uh, we filmed in November of eighty nine. Okay. So yes, when the Jays were doing very well. <laughs> yes. So we're going back a ways, and then uh, uh, went back to to school uh, to do a film degree. When finishing film school, uh, produced a documentary uh, on phone sex called Telehor. Uh, and uh, with uh, for those of you, who I'm know, just logging into Netflix to look. For uh, I'm not sure. If, uh, well, you, it's. I think it might be on I, IMDb. Um, well, and I think I'm the only social selling supposed influencer with a, with an IMDb credit. If that counts. If for that anything. counts for yes. <laughs> uh, and um, anyway, the um, uh, the documentary was uh, in the Toronto Film Festival in 1993 in the Perspectives Canada program and toured with, uh, we exhibited the Melbourne and Sydney Film Festivals, toured with Lollapalooza, sold it to Channel 4 in the UK, uh, and SBS TV in Australia. And it was uh, directed by Spencer Rice of Kenny vs. Spenny fame. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So wow. he, and I, he and I went to film school together. So that's back in the 80s. Uh, it started in the 80s. Yeah, 93 was when the documentary was. That was out. that. What was that? What was the name of that documentary again? Telehor. Telehor. Oh, I don't know why I don't remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, remembering that name when you first yes. said it. Um, okay, so in the 80s, you graduate from film school. Uh, or fine actually, arts. I have a degree in economics. Degree in e- of, of course, I can see now how that comes then, together. Uh, I took film studies when I was there. So where you, okay? So where where did you go for economics and film studies? I went to, to econo- for economics was Laurentian. Okay. Uh, and then took film studies as a minor there, and actually enjoyed that more, and had better marks in film studies than I had in economics. Although I still got it, my degree, uh, and came home, worked for a while, uh, worked in, then decided to explore the film industry. Mm-hmm. I uh, worked in the industry, did some commercials, BF Goodrich, Eaton Center, uh, or sorry, Eaton's, not the Eaton Center, um, a couple, uh, McDonald's, uh, and then uh, worked, uh, did the movie uh, with Mickey Rooney, and then went back to film school for three years, and that's when I, I sold cars to pay my way through film school. Ah. And uh, and then uh, worked in the industry for a while, doing some more uh, production stuff, uh, did an internship with the King Academy. Uh, and then uh, one of my friends from s- film school was building websites, mm-hmm. and I saw something in what he was doing, 
and it sparked an idea, and I started my own e-commerce company selling menswear on the Internet in 1995. Oh, my. And what was the name of that company? That was uh, the EOS company. Uh, EOS stood for Elements of Style. Of course. And so, as I like to say, 1995 BG, before Google. And uh, so I couldn't get arrested in Canada trying to sell clothes on the Internet. Going to the banks to say I wanted to take credit cards over the web, they they would say, you want to do what? What is the web? I would reiterate, I want to take credit card payments over the Internet. And they would say, hmm, I would like $25,000 as a security deposit to mitigate fraud. And I would say, if I had $25,000, I wouldn't give it to you. I would use it for marketing. And so I was getting inquiries from Scandinavia, Japan, the U.S., but not from Canada, which is where I um, predominantly um, could serve. And as well, this was way before it was easier to do cross-border shopping. It was really horrendous then. Yeah. So selling internationally was really, really difficult. And so after... Now, who else is in the, is in the game of e-commerce back then? Virtually no one. So what was it that that you saw that, yeah, this is what people are, are, are doing? It sounds, they'll, they'll it sounds really cheesy, but my friend was doing web design. Yeah. We were looking at an e-commerce site in the U.S. So e-commerce was happening regionally, but yeah. you know, shopping uh, internationally, what, you, know, you would look at the price on the website, and then you know what you end up paying for it after the exchange rates and ridiculous duty and ridiculous shipping um, was, was still making it rather difficult. So shipping cross border, you know, this is when companies started coming out of the woodwork to figure out how to do this better, more cheaply, more cost effective. Mm-hmm. So anyway, my friend was showing me a website, and it sounds so silly now, but he clicked on the picture, a thumbnail picture of a shirt, and it got bigger. Yeah, and I was just like. Hmm. There's some, and I had worked all uh, all through high school and university. I had worked in a menswear uh, store. Okay. So the, that was my background, and so I thought there's something there, and that's so I started my own company. Just and I went to suppliers and, and got arranged inventory and so on. And a lot of the suppliers were intrigued because no one had approached them to do anything like this. And what year are we talking about? This is 1995. And I Holy ended up background. getting uh, featured on the front cover of the business section of the Toronto Star. But it didn't matter because Canadians at the time weren't buying on the Internet as a, you know, um, they weren't comfortable with it. Right, sure. Uh, at that time. And so uh, after a year and a half of just This is 20 years ago. That's right. So I'm banging. So I, you know, this is before Amazon. That's right. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I was a bit of a pioneer. Uh, and so I took what I learned from that experience. And started working for an e-commerce software company that was targeting companies like me, but in the U.S. We were Toronto-based, but the uptake for uh, the hunger for it in the U.S., the U.S. has always been, from an adoption of technology, yeah. three years ahead at least. Hmm. And so where we w- couldn't get arrested in Canada trying to sell our software, 90% of our revenue came from south of the border. Interesting. And you're providing e-commerce solutions I was doing channel management okay, uh, and strategic alliances, looking for companies that would either sell our solution to small to medium businesses or I'd work with uh, alliance partners that are like um, payment processors okay, and merchant account providers. Anything that was an impediment to people using our software, I usually was working up uh, strategic alliances with them. Wow. that's So let's, let's take a, a, a couple of steps back. You graduate economics and film studies. Mm-hmm. You work with Mickey Rooney. You go back to film school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you make Telehor, and then, yes. and then your friend mm. is working on websites. And you go, "Wow, this is the now, and this is the future." Yep. Um, was there a? Were you already looking, and did you already understand, like for yourself, that I guess in Canada? Uh, there wasn't a future in TV production or film production? Well, for me, what it was, um, I I was very, very fortunate. Uh, I was one of 400 applicants. I think 400 people applied, and I was one of 11 to be awarded an internship through the Canadian Academy, the Canadian Academy of Cinema and Television. 
So I was you know, really fortunate, and I, I uh, ended up doing my internship with Owl Television, which was doing a lot of production uh, of children's television. Okay. And but it was a great exposure, and and I soon learned that the majority uh, of uh, what happens in film is uh, to do with lawyers. Um, not not that there's anything wrong with meaning lawyers. what. Um, it's really about intellectual property. Okay. Um, the downstream for revenue and um, and the deal. Uh, and what was also happening, or what increasingly evident, was when I finished film school, there was the Ontario Film Development Corporation. It's an extension of the government and to fund uh, film projects. Or at least it doesn't exist anymore, but it morphed into something that I'll explain in a, in a moment. So the OFDC had about 25 to $30 million in funding and was funding one discipline, film. Hmm. It has now become the Ontario Media Development Corporation. Yes. It's roughly the same budget. But they film everything. Uh, funding about five to six disciplines. So what's happened is the industry as a whole has contracted. Okay. Th- and, and if you recall, uh, Alliance Atlantis... Yes. Used to make a lot of television shows, mm-hmm. a lot of production. Well, about that time, they were consolidating. And now they're, you know, I forget who acquired them, but they're essentially gone. So they got out of production and just got into distribution. So it became harder and harder to um, do stuff and be profitable. And so much of the industry relies on government funding. Why is that? And now, is that a Canadian? It's a Canadian. So it's great that we have those sources of funding to to yeah. create um, Canadian content. But by the same token, it can perpetuate some content that, you know, if this was purely a for-profit endeavor and you had to stand or fall by how good your product was, mm-hmm. you know, some stuff, you know, um, wouldn't pass muster. And, and this is not meant to slight anybody who's still currently working in the industry. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a firm believer uh, in funding the arts. Uh, but it just, uh, I just had this sense that the industry wasn't going in the right direction from a growth and opportunity point of view. And you're an economics major, so you knew this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I, maybe intuitively. Yeah. Um, but what's happened is it's sort of come full circle in that. And I didn't necessarily know at the time. It wasn't that prescient. But um, to see that now, w- how often do we hear the words, it's about storytelling? All the time. And so now, uh, the only thing that has changed is the medium by which we're t- uh, that we're using uh, to tell the stories. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's sort of come full circle. And I draw on my film experience every single day. Uh, it, f- it frames the perspective that I take on things. Um, when I look at strategy and, and business, I, I bring to it the, a different perspective because of my film background. Uh, and um, so anyway, it's, it was by no means um, uh, a waste of my time. Yeah. Now, do you also, I, I'm curious, you know, with that background that you have, um, your thoughts on everything from uh, Netflix to binge watching mm-hmm. Uh, to I don't know who it was that Bell maybe it was the president that said <laughs> yes. that you know, Netflix is, Netflix mm-hmm. is stealing or something like that or people that watch Netflix are stealing. If um, you use a VPN to yeah. watch Netflix, yeah, um, in the U.S., she said when she heard that her daughter was doing this, she said, "You know, you're stealing." Mm-hmm. I'll, somebody else can <laughs> debate whether it's theft or not, but I will say this: when you have Netflix in Canada with roughly seven thousand titles, and you have Netflix in the U.S. with sixty thousand, yeah, it still comes down to the consumer wants access to more, and so if you want to just put a, a, a arbitrary moat between the consumer and access to those titles, pardon me, um, then they'll figure out how to get it, how to get it. And, uh, and so I was actually shocked that Canada has the, the second most titles for any Netflix country. At seven, that, wow. At, yeah, because mm. there was, uh, I don't know, it's probably CBC. That's only... Uh, I wonder uh, what the UK has, then. Yeah, I think more, I think there was someone from Europe or wherever that was visiting Canada and, and they logged in and it was um, they were excited about the, <laughs> about the choices <laughs> wow <laughs> you know well um, uh, and to, to um, comment on uh, um, binge watching and so on like to me it's it's 
Netflix has brought new life to uh, content that had mm-hmm. been lost. Um, I love documentaries and yeah. the fact that Netflix has a has a strong category of content um, for documentaries. So to me, it's a, another means of uh, revisiting content that people might have missed. It's giving that longer tail life. So yeah. if I've gone to the trouble of making product, um, now they're having direct product. Mm-hmm. So like uh, Orange is the New Black and House of Cards and um, and... Uh, the most recent uh, Netflix proprietary show that I watched was uh, Bloodline, which was amazing. Really? Yeah. I I, I, I I don't know. I gave it a chance. Did you watch any of it? No, I didn't. I I, oh. I, I, I think I looked at it, and, and I might have played a couple of minutes, and I go, I, no, it's, it's not grabbing me. I wasn't sure at the first episode. Yeah. But then really? the, the main, uh, the, the brother that co- comes home and causes all the problems, uh, I think it's Ben Mendelsohn. I think he's either from Australia or New Zealand, but you know, often plays an American character. He, I, I hope, come next September. Is it September when they do the Emmys? Whenever the next Emmys is, I hope that he's at least. He was known. that good. Yeah. Wow. Well, in the last year for me, um, like if there could have been an Oscar for uh, Matthew McConaughey's work in True Detective. Mm. Yeah, I, I don't he, watch I, HBO. I, th- I think he won the Emmy. Yeah. Um, he was absolutely amazing and so there's even though people say well you know uh, audiences are splintered and and fragmented or however you want to describe it good content Mm -hmm. gets seen it finds its audience yeah now I will say Kevin Spacey said that in well but but something along those lines the other thing is um, I watched the final episode of MASH and I forget how Hmm. many millions of people watched it. that's right well it was a tenth of that that watched the final episode of The Office. Mm. So what's happened is the audience is, uh, like the event television concept yeah. isn't event television anymore. No. Um, I mean, if you look at David Letterman's final show, it was the highest ratings in several years. But For think, him. Yeah, but it wasn't necessarily his highest ratings ever. Ever, sure. Um, his, you know, he was 68 people have years more, old. People have more choice than, than ever before. And they know that they can watch it later. And I think it's only, you know, sports and news that are sort of appointment. Well, you know, and even news, you don't need it at 10 o'clock or at 6 o'clock whenever the news is on. No, um, well, we were elections talking, maybe. Well, we were talking earlier about Periscope. Yes. And I was reading an article about Periscope and someone was saying we need to be mindful or paying a, pay more attention in the upcoming presidential election or even in our own Canadian election, should there, uh, should it be called? Because this idea of being on the campaign bus with Hillary Clinton or whoever, mm-hmm. interviewing her, and then getting off the bus, running to the van out behind, getting it edited and uploaded via satellite to be yeah. broadcast at 6 o'clock, that's not going to have to happen anymore. No. I'm going to put my phone in front of Hillary Clinton and interview her, and she's being broadcast live, unfiltered, no handlers, <laughs> straight yeah, over the web, and so there's no there's no more need to have an appointment per se. Yeah, um, and I mean there'll still be. I'm not saying the six o'clock news is now like defunct. No, I well, I mean, it might mm-hmm. be because you you mm-hmm. know ever since CNN came onto the scene and now all these other you know Fox News and CNBC and I don't know if CBC News World is still around, um, but you you can get the news whenever you want. Yeah. You know, here in Toronto, we've got 680 News uh, well, on the radio. Well, but even if you think about it, I was talking about so, with it, uh, talking about it today with someone and said, you know, Saturday afternoon or Saturday night and during the t- height of the Rob Ford era, mm. Rob Ford's out doing something on a Saturday night and it starts getting talked about in social. Yeah. And it rises to its zenith and flames out by Sunday morning. Yeah. And the Globe and Mail reports it on Monday in, in the paper. Yeah. Now, it might have made it to the Globe's website. And this is not to slam the Globe or any newspaper. It just speaks to the change in the situation. Yeah. That a story can uh, um, come and go in social and only be sort of um, reiterated in traditional media. Yeah. And, and, and you make a point about content. Um it's how you package that because I, I still think that now 
you, I mean, I, I listened to, um, I think it was today, or, or it might have been, yeah, it might have been yesterday or today, um, Canada Land, um, Jesse Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and he talked about um, that guy from uh, CBC Power and Money show. The uh, Evan Solomon? Evan Solomon. Right. And, you know, it was a couple of days after, you know, everything broke. And you think, okay, well, now we know everything that we need to know. And it's, it's sort of how you package that story and retell it in a way that hasn't been told before. Um, because I think, you know, whether it's news or, or, or movies or TV shows or whatever is on Netflix or, or whatnot, you know, needs to also be entertaining. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, storytelling is very important. Oh, and uh, to credit uh, traditional media, I mean, yes, you can mention in a soundbite over Twitter, a tweet, Evan Solomon lost his job at the CBC. Okay. Yeah. Soundbite. Versus here's 2,000 words on why he lost his job, who the players were, that's and right. so on. And that's, uh, to your point, where... The role of traditional media, or or I'll call it long form journalism, mm-hmm. um, plays a role. I you know I remember like I still read the Globe and Mail every morning, the physical paper. So like I am analog in in some ways. You have black ink on your fingers. No, <laughs> and uh, I, I look forward to Sunday mornings and a coffee with the New York Times. Uh, but I remember I think one or two weekends ago. They had an excerpt from the Losing Signal book about BlackBerry. And here was a two full page. Oh, yes, a brand new book. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the Globe had an excerpt from the book that was two full pages of the newspaper um, you know, derived from the book. And it made for great reading. Well, you know, that would have been one really long blog. And I don't know if I would have <laughs> stuck with it. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I think there's something about when you sit in front of a computer screen or your phone screen that you're going to take bite-sized information. Um, there's a very popular uh, sports property, online sports property called The Score, mm-hmm. which is huge all over the world, based here in Toronto. Mm-hmm. And a year or so ago, they fired uh, a lot of their longtime writers that were writing long-form um, pieces that were really uh, captivating. Like, I really enjoyed reading The Score. But if you go on to it now, it is one, two, three hundred words max that you're going to get. You're going to get photos. You're going to get gifs or gifs. Yeah. You're you're going to get you know quick little videos. But you're not going to get um, an interview, uh, an analysis uh, from that. You know they are strictly a a mobile play company, mm-hmm. and so they figured out that people you know aren't going to take five ten minutes to read something. They're they've got sixty seconds, and you need to. Tell them the story very, very quickly because they want to get something else as well. Well, um, isn't it? Uh, I want to come back to that in a second, but yeah. isn't it Harvard Business Review that uh, shows you how much farther to, you, like, how many more minutes it will take to read the remainder of the article? You might so be right. Somebody yeah. was talking about a particular website that will tell you there's like two minutes left for you to read. Interesting. I know Medium tells you how long uh, the article oh, is in time. Okay. So that uh, yeah. well, that's one example. But someone was mentioning either Harvard Business Review or something like that. But, yeah. Um, this, I've used the analogy of if I send you a 15-page PDF report, yeah. economic report or analyst report or whatever, you have no idea how long it's going to take you to read it. And, and, what, and if you're looking at it on your phone going, well, I'm going to have to save that for later. Yeah. But if I send you a two-minute YouTube video and it says two minutes, well, you know I've only asked two minutes of your time and the likelihood of you watching it on your phone because two minutes isn't a huge demand on you. Mm-hmm. So it's there's also this argument uh, about the format that the content comes in and whether it's more consumable, snackable, or long form is when I'm at home and short yeah. form is you know, all that um, is up kind of up for grabs. But your example about the score. So um, I teach digital strategy at U of T's School of Continuing Studies. And last night was uh, presentations from my students. And one of my students was giving a presentation about uh, a firing of a staff member from ESPN. Well, and he, I think it was it Bill Simmons? Yes. So he, there was a website that he predominantly wrote for that's right and wrote for in long form 8,000 10,000 words yeah. and it had a huge following huge following and so is there still a place for long form I, I think there is I mean if if no one wanted long form writing of any kind well books you know electronic and otherwise um, would go by, go the way of the dodo but 
Um, so we all say, is there an audience? But you do you do work in you you know you've you've got your finger in analytics as well with with the current work that you're already mm-hmm. doing. We'll get to that. You know, if if these people are all about the bottom line and they're knowing you know what brings in more clicks, what brings in more views, what brings in more eyeballs that they can sell uh, advertising on. Um, if if a lot of people or enough people were interested in long form, then wouldn't you know these sort of writers and other properties? Um, you know, like I think Recode just shut down, yeah, or they got sold off. The, yeah, I think they, sold they got off. sold off. Mm-hmm. I don't, uh, I don't um, know who too, but oh, Giga Ohm, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. shut down, and they were huge in terms of long form inv- investigative mm-hmm. type writing. You know, wouldn't they still be around, or is it like I said, it's so fragmented that you know, really, it's it's attention that you need. I'm not, I'm not really sure what the answer is. I well, I think. I'm speculating here, but what it could be is not about long form as in written text, hmm. but format. Format. Okay. So if we look at how we are seeing higher engagements for video, mm-hmm. higher engagements for images, and as they say, a picture speaks a thousand words. But um, what? why is the rise of Meerkat in Periscope so high? Um, you know, people talk about AMAs on Reddit. For those yes. who aren't familiar, ask me ask anything, me anything is, right. is the acronym. Well, I remember Hootsuite did an AMA, mm-hmm. not on Reddit, but they had questions coming in over Twitter and they had the guest respond over Periscope. Interesting. So what's happening is we're changing the format by which we have a dialogue. That is very interesting. Um, let's move forward. So you, you get into to menswear, mm-hmm. started EOS. Mm-hmm. Um, no one's buying, or no one in Canada is buying. No one's. No one. I sold shirts in the U.S. and uh, had orders or interest from Japan and Scandinavia, but like I said, they couldn't get arrested here. So, um, and so you joined this American company that's enabling. American. Well, I no, I joined or Canadian uh, company. I joined uh, one Canadian software company uh, now uh, gone. Uh, was brought in to help them sell. A, <laughs> you're gonna laugh. They were moving from a Apple uh, Mac platform to mm-hmm. Unix and NT. And ironically, 20 years later, you know, uh, Apple is is dominant. <laughs> dominant. So here's this you know niche. Um, Apple software company uh, developing a e-commerce solution to create uh, uh, an online catalog um, for Unix and NT. So I was brought in by with a number of other people to help sell that, but you know, too many people brought in too fast and too soon, uh, and the product I think was released more than six months after I left. Oh wow. A lot of false starts. And so then I went and worked for this other e-commerce software company that was targeting a small to medium business in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So still, if I hadn't done my e-commerce business, I wouldn't have had this path of working for e-commerce software companies. So I went to work for a company called Inex that was um, building channels of resellers in the U.S. And I, I was a channel manager doing channel development and strategic alliances and worked there I was employee number 14 and helped the company grow and uh, right through to acquisition. So we were, um, I, nice. saw, I saw the whole dot-com boom and bust. And then um, after the acquisition and they shuttered the Toronto office, yeah, uh, we spun out a new company. Those of us in sales and marketing, our VP of sales became the CEO of a new company. Uh, but this was uh, May of 2000, so two months after the the beginning of the decline mm-hmm. and never regained the momentum that we'd had even though we were rebranded but it was the same team and the company was gone within two years wow and then um i was left after everything i saw during that period strategies chased on a whim money thrown at people with a powerpoint and an mba so i actually went back to school and got my mba uh, <laughs> <laughs> not for that reason but um more because I wanted more tools in my toolkit, and uh, I'd always liked education, and I have a, a passion for it, and now I teach. Uh, so I went back and did uh, the executive MBA at U of T's uh, Robin School of Man- uh, Management. And okay. Then, uh, when I finished, I landed a job at Bell Canada in Strategic Alliances. 
Interesting. In, in wireless. In wireless, so that you're you're hooking up with. Um, is that basically sales? You just work with large companies, so, onboarding them. Well, most people, th- when I would say wireless, they go, "Oh, you mean like you know BlackBerry handsets and so on." I said I would have to correct them and say, "No, actually, pagers." Uh, no, not, no. Even, not <laughs> even that. Um, they were uh, handheld uh, scanners and computers. That so when you walked into a Canadian Tire, yes, yes, and you see people in the middle of the sales force scanning product, yeah, those devices usually um, now Motorola at the time they were Symbol are communicating over a wireless infrastructure inside oh. the store. And it was Bell Canada that would sell them that solution. Okay. But all of those solutions, none of the product per se was owned by Bell. They were all alliance relationships. And so I managed some of the relationships with those product providers. Oh, that was interesting. Yeah. And was there still a hunger to to, to get into e-commerce? So you sort of said, okay, that was the past. Let's move that, forward. That was the past. That, let's move uh, on. And so I was enjoying my, my time at Bell. And what happened when I was doing my MBA was that I had want, you know, I wanted to get more and more into strategy and consulting. And uh, But you know, I tr- when I first finished uh, MBA school, I tried to go to work for some of the consulting companies. What kind of consulting are we talking about? Uh, management consulting. Okay. So the big five, um, you know, McKinsey, Accenture, et cetera. However, what they will not tell you, and this, again, not to slag them, um, is that when you, you know, I finish MBA school, I'm married, I've got two kids. Yeah. I, I have what is referred to as a life. Uh, <laughs> and, no, and I'm serious. Sure. They, they, when they will not tell you, mm-hmm. uh, I even had one person say very kindly, we don't typically make lateral hires, which was a very subtle way of saying we don't typically hire people um, as old as you mm. and who are as established because what they want to be able to do is they want someone newly out of business school yeah. young and single because you're going on a plane on Sunday night and you're coming back Thursday and mm. they're going to put you into the grinder for a couple of years Sure. and if you're married with children they know they can't do that or that you won't you won't, won't do that it won't be sustained yeah and so that's their model and I'm, I'm not uh, um, meaning to denigrate that so when they looked at me as a potential candidate Mm -hmm. my chance was nil yeah Uh, uh, there was and ended up being an opportunity after I had worked at Bell there was a a, um, sort of a um, there was a consulting company that did a lot of work in telecom that was interested in me yeah thankfully I I didn't land a role there because they went bankrupt about a year later Nortel (laughs) no uh, uh, (laughs) bearing point okay uh, so anyway, um, after um, three years at Bell, they just—I um, ended up there in a in a period of um, contraction. They were downsizing, mm-hmm. and they just kept whittling away. They whittled away my boss, who had hired me. Then they whittled away the next boss, the next boss, and and then um, whittled away the team that I was on. And then I went to work for the department that I had supported, and um, then ultimately they. They blew up that business unit. And so um, my father had worked for Bell for 33 and a half years. Wow. From 18 through to retirement, and I was three years and change. <laughs> uh, and But then I was like, okay. Um, I looked for work for a while, and I was like, why don't I do what I want to do? Yeah. And which was to get into consulting. Uh, and luckily, a friend of mine had uh, who was had been doing management consulting for a number of years ha- and knew that my interest in it and had a project that was too big for him. So he brought me in, and that got me rolling. Nice. And so it's been seven years in management mm-hmm. consulting. Excellent. But with an emphasis on social media. Strategy. Yeah, because that's sort of where you are now, right? That's right. And and you talk about social media strategy, but really, it's it seems to me that you're focused a lot on social selling. Well, so um, there's three, essentially three facets to um, the work that uh, I do and my company does because I do have people that work with me. Um, One facet is uh, outsourced social media management. Mm -hmm. So um, small to medium businesses often find themselves in one of three positions. They've tried social media and abandoned it for whatever reason. They've tried social media and can't keep up to the demands of it. Mm -hmm. Or they don't know where to start. Yeah. So companies that find themselves in any one of those three positions Mm -hmm. can't afford to staff it, don't have the time or the knowledge, uh, we'll take it on for them. So we have, you know, it runs the gamut from an accounting software company, uh, an ERP software company, a junk removal, menswear store, 
um, they don't want to do it. Yeah. And so because of the work that I, when I was consulting to RBC as their head of social media strategy, I had access to methodologies, practices, and technologies that I can now scale down to and spread across. Interesting. SMBs, and that's part of the value proposition. Yeah. And so um, I've built a system and methods to scale social across you know, disparate organizations and to make it easy for um, us with a small team to scale it and make it easy for the small to medium business to afford it. And the other um, piece of the business is doing larger scale strategy projects for uh, larger organizations. And finally, what you mentioned, a social selling. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of the teaching that I've done, um, both uh, having taught entrepreneurship at OCAD University and now teaching digital strategy at U of T, I saw more and more people that were talking about, you know, LinkedIn training and this and that. And um, people would often come to me to learn about social. So I started putting together curriculum mm -hmm. around social and more specifically LinkedIn. Uh, but going and doing a one-day workshop and just basically, you know, sort of, I call it, you know, plugging them into the matrix and downlo yeah. downloading for six hours, people would go away and the retention was probably very low, modest at best. Yeah. And I, I would talk to the decision makers that were bringing me in to do the training and I would say to them, in the past, what have you done? Uh, workshops or... Um, programs and mm -hmm. they would say well workshops and i would say well wh what's the uptake what's the outcome oh well they walk away with a few nuggets and i would say well i don't want my program to be dis described that way yeah that, oh they walked away with a few nuggets of value yeah and so because i'm accustomed to teaching in a semester format where yeah, i see you for a few hours this week yeah then next week I'm going to layer on to what we learned last week and we're going to, and I want, and so I'm compounding the learning. You're having the opportunity to enact what you learned last week yeah. in between classes and you're having the chance to absorb it more. So retention is higher. Uh, everything is just better. Sure. So now we deliver programs that are over several weeks. Interesting. So yeah. what, you're, you're going from the classroom and taking that classroom to the people. Yeah, so I recently yeah. finished a program with an insurance company. Yeah. And we did four modules over about six weeks. Interesting. And it, now, from the, the company's point of view, it yeah. means that the people are out of the field less, like only for a couple hours on sure. one day. Then they can go take what they learned and, and act execute. It and hopefully and execute. Yeah. But then when they're having a sales meeting, they can, I often recommend add a few minutes or take a few minutes of your sales meeting and make it about social selling so that you can, as peers to each other, colleagues, talk about what's working, what's not, um, talk about successes, talk about challenges so that you can share with each other and learn in the process. And then when we're back together as a group, yeah, we'll do the same thing again. And often a question you might have for me is on the mind of other people in the group. Interesting. Yeah. Um, and what, so you, nine years, you said you've been doing this for nine years, seven uh, years? Seven. Seven years. What has changed in in, in seven years um, in, in social media? What what have companies started focusing more on or less on? Uh, you know, where do you see things going in terms of not social media, in terms of how are people sharing photos of their cats and dogs and family, but in terms of how businesses used it seven years ago and, and how they're using it today? Um well, I was one of the f in the first 200,000 members on LinkedIn. So mm -hmm. I've been on LinkedIn for a decade. And I've seen it evolve dramatically over mm -hmm. time. I've seen Facebook, where it had whole economies around games and other things, yeah. uh, come and go. I, I was very fortunate, as a result of LinkedIn, to have been commissioned to do a research project on, in 2008 about social media and all the predominant networks uh, at that time. And I remind people that in 2008, MySpace was bigger than Facebook. Sure. It has come, gone, gone. come back again, and s sort of linger, or, yeah. or some might argue that it's gone again. And so uh, that's a lot of change. Um, Twitter is, isn't even a decade old. Mm -hmm. And again, now there's scrutiny about what will happen next now that D Dick Costello has, has stepped down. There is 
ever-expanding channels, ever-expanding demand for content, so mm -hmm. it's getting noisier and noisier. But if we look back to, we'll just use LinkedIn as an example, with the financial crisis in 2008, I think that mm -hmm. was the biggest factor for their growth because it meant a lot of people were out of work and the, the necessity to network to find work again sparked the growth because in 2008, I don't even think they were at 100 million members. Really? Uh, I ended up being actually featured when they, uh, as a, um, they had a, a, a website called 100million.linkedin.com and they had um, profile pictures of 100 people, 100 members of from ah. LinkedIn globally and I, yeah. was, I was one of the 100. And then last October when LinkedIn Canada reached 10 million members, mm -hmm. they featured 10 members from Canada yeah. and, and their success stories and I was one of the 10. Awesome. And the organization that commissioned me from the UK to do that research project, that was the success story that I shared. So... All that to say that LinkedIn over that decade has yeah. become more and more of a um, a very, very powerful platform, still underutilized by many. Sure. A lot of people will describe it as the online equivalent of the Chamber of Commerce, or it's a, nothing but a job board. One of the reasons social selling is on the rise, it's not, yes, I'll be the first one to say it uh, could be a bit of a buzzword. It's simply networking it's simply getting referrals but it's using tools that are available to you to make someone else's network transparent to you so you're more efficient in asking for a referral hmm. but a lot of people don't see it that way yeah um you talk about linkedin what about uh you know some of your uh smaller clients you talked about junk removal company uh mm -hmm. men's clothing wear yeah. um are they utilizing or some of your other clients are they utilizing any other uh, channels. Well, so, so for the menswear, uh, we're trying to grow their Instagram. Okay. Because anything, uh, luxury brands, apparel, mm -hmm. Instagram is uh, a very, very dominant channel. It's also quite powerful for e-commerce. Yeah. Um, my menswear client d is not set up for e-commerce. They're still bricks and mortar. So, so they're trying to drive people to come to their store. Yeah. And so... Uh, you know, it's a f uh, forty-year-old business, mm -hmm. um, and so we're trying to. Uh, the, the problem is, here's a forty-year-old bricks-and-mortar uh, business that, uh, as you often and I'm sure you'll agree, there's no shortage of organizations that aren't participating in the online conversation. Yeah. So these younger, more nimble organizations who don't even necessarily have a physical footprint mm -hmm. are using social, like Indochino. Yeah, had a factory in Vancouver and no physical stores until mm -hmm. now, and they were lighting the world on fire with Instagram. Yeah, and Twitter. Or Frank and Oak, I think they've got they've got they've got a cafe yeah. in Toronto or something. Yeah, Frank and uh, so all these uh, that were taking a different angle. Yeah, uh, and tapping into the more socially savvy. And you know, this mentor client is the mentor store I used to work for in high school and university. Okay. And so, you know, I've never not, uh, I've always kept in touch with the owner. And I had said, like, I wanted out of my personal history with them to see them be able to combat, combat uh, what was happening. Yeah. So, you know, they're east of the city. And so a lot of the people that live in their town, or, well, I should say their city, um, commute to Toronto. Mm -hmm. And so those same people are commuting to Toronto and being deluged by Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn by their competitors. Yeah. And they weren't even there to, to influence any decision making. Sure. That's interesting. And with the rise of e-commerce, um, you know, I could be receiving a tweet or an, uh, an email from a retailer in the UK mm -hmm. just as easily as... The one down the street. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so mm. what, what sort of... I'm, I'm curious about that because here's sort of a a bricks and mortar company no online in terms of you can't purchase online right um how do you work with a company like that with social you know getting someone from their phone who's seeing a nice uh photograph of of product uh in their living room to drive out well i'll give you an example so uh early on i mean uh, to their credit they were open okay let's try this they were accustomed to trying traditional print and even buying radio ads. Sure. And I'm saying, well, if you can't prove the ROI of radio, like don't look, don't beat me up if if you think that social is a bit elusive for proving ROI. If you don't know your Google Analytics, so if I do, 
our darndest to drive traffic via social to your website and yeah. you can't provide that information for me, then I'm at a, a bit of a disadvantage. Sure. Um, but, you know, the main thing is is that we wanted them to be a participant in the conversation rather than being silent and having their competitors just sort of roll past them. So that they're really seen as being relevant and you know in the game, even though they they don't do e-commerce. Uh, and are you uh, talking to them about e-commerce, or are they just not? That's a whole other. Uh, well, the part of the problem is Indochino has their own label. Mm. This bricks and mortar store doesn't have their any private label. So when when it's you're selling the brands of uh, so let's we'll take Hugo Boss as an example, sure. which is a line that they carry. Well, you're competing against everybody else that carries Hugo Boss. Interesting. Uh, and so and that when I had my own e-commerce company, that's the problem I faced. So here I am, this one guy. Actually, I had two partners in, in the beginning, trying to start uh, to sell menswear online. And I actually had some of my suppliers concerned that I was going to undercut some of their larger retail customers because mm. I had no, um, I had a much lower cost model. Well, they were concerned, and you know, but they could have coerced me to maintain a higher price, which actually would have meant I was not being competitive. Sure. When some of the bigger uh, retailers were buying product and immediately selling it at a lower price the minute it hit the shelf. And so that mm. was what I was up against, too. Yeah. So I was caught between a rock and a hard place. So you know, switching back to the, to the menswear client we have now, yeah. Um, it really comes down to just helping them uh, be relevant and be part of the conversation uh, and uh, to be heard. And uh, you know, to promote the different products that they carry. There are some brands that they carry, so they're east of the city. And between Toronto and Kingston, they're uh, the one retailer that carries certain lines of product okay. in that span. So yeah. to promote the fact that they're exclusive on some brands and things like that. Uh, and like I said, just you know, to, to tell a little bit of their story and uh, you know, establish their footprint of both Facebook and, and Twitter uh, and Instagram. And garner a following for them. So we're not always just talking about the lines that they carry. Mm-hmm. You know, we've um, we try to have content about what it's like to be a gentleman, and interesting, stylish, and you know, yeah. Here's the latest trailer from James Bond because everybody James Bond um, there's has his own style. Yeah, and so there's there are blogs dedicated to the different suits of James Bond. Wow, uh, over, over the different. I can years. imagine. Yeah, that's yeah. right. So. It's that kind of content, um, um, you know, um, how to how to have three day stubble in, in, in the best way possible. Yeah. Um, you know, um, like uh, grooming tips and and that kind of stuff. Interesting. So uh, adjacent. You're content. serving the gentleman yeah. who is also your client. Yeah. So that's we're trying to do storytelling. Yeah. Through the content we share, that isn't just about well, here's the latest spring merchandise. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Yeah, next <laughs> uh, so it'll be you know here's uh, what you should look for if you're buying a vintage watch here's you know here's um, some video from uh, the introduction of the new uh, Aston Martin from the movie Spectre mm. the new James Bond yeah um, any you know anything or like I'll call it guy content or sure. or gear content tech content so it's just giving them an excuse to pay attention to, uh, to the Twitter feed yeah, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. What do you sort of where where do companies go next? Um, you know, what sort of not the next channel like you know everyone's got to get on Periscope or whatever the next thing is, but where what do you see as as the next challenge or the next opportunity for for small businesses for for large enterprises? Uh, I think companies need to think more about video content. Okay. Uh, now, it still comes down to good stories, and people will for, forgive production value for for good content. Mm-hmm. So, which is why you know Periscope is taking off. It's not high production value; it's a phone. No, yeah. But I was at the Digital Marketing for Financial Services conference this week, and there was someone from uh, Tangerine mm. who said, "We have our own studio now in house." 
Now, not everyone can afford their own studio, but here sure. we are in, I call it a borrowed space. Yeah. But it's your studio, I know. <laughs> um, but this idea of starting to think about production, not just of text, but mm-hmm. richer media, so that um, can I take a one-hour interview yeah. and make it one hour, but then a series of sound bites around certain themes, so that here's two minutes on... Social selling. Yeah. Here's two minutes about storytelling. Here's two minutes or whatever. Now, that, I mean, that's me as a social media person. Yeah. But if I'm the menswear store, um, here's two minutes on shoe care. Here's two minutes on um, how to know that your suit fits properly. Um, here's two minutes on the difference between X and Y or about a particular cut or whatever. Um, because I think increasingly people will, and as you we were saying earlier, uh, they're going to read uh, a thousand word blog I don't know yeah. but the likelihood of them watching a two minute um, video excuse me is quite high or do it as an infographic mm-hmm. so I think people are having to be perhaps do less content but higher quality like because the production of a video even if it's we're not talking CGI and green screen and all that sure still you know, we had to come sit in a studio and doing yeah. a podcast. Now, we could still do this around a kitchen table with two microphones and a computer or a phone. Yeah. But that's still more than one person with a computer writing a blog. That it's is still, true. It's a little more involved. Yeah. But I think organizations are going to have to think more and more about that because that's the kind of content that is it's proven to be consumed. Hmm. That's very interesting. Um, I try to be interesting, you <laughs> and you have. Um, let Let's quickly wrap it up. I've I've got a couple of things I, I want to I want to go through. Actually, one thing I don't have it here. Um, is it true you've written a book? You've published a book? No, no. So, so uh, where have I read that? Why? Well, am so I thinking that? Um, what it was. Um, I've been published twice in the Cambridge Marketing Review in the UK. Ah. So I've written two articles there, but. There was a book written uh, recently by Lisa Shepard from the Mezzanine Group, where she interviewed twelve, yes, yes, yes. Uh, sorry, um, twenty B two B marketing leaders, mm-hmm. and I was uh, fortunate uh, to be one of those twenty. So I'm in a book, but ah. I, I didn't write it. Ah, and, and she's the founder of the Mezzanine Group. That's right, Lisa Shepard. Yes, awesome. Talking about social selling, I'm sure. Uh, ju- just B two B marketing, either that in or in a, in a social, in a social <laughs> content. No, I, we did not talk about that. You didn't talk about. That. Well, so just on that topic of, of the <laughs> title, when uh, we knew we were we uh, Spencer and I and, and the group had discussed, we were trying to figure out what we were going to do for a documentary subject, and there was five of us in, in the on the in the group and slash crew, and one of the people on the crew knew someone who knew someone who performed phone sex for a living. Mm-hmm. And when Spencer heard that, he was like, that's it. And then when we were filming her and interviewing her for the film, she said, well, basically, I'm a telehore. And we were done. That was the title. That was the title. So that's, she, this is what she referred to herself as. Um, it was a very provocative film. But I'm it was, sure. It was very well received. Uh, and um, But you know, it shed light on a um, what a lot of people might have misunderstood or had um, uh, perhaps the in- incorrect perception about what the business is all about. So Awesome. Okay, I got some rapid fire questions for okay. you. Okay, ready? <laughs> are they numeric? They're, they are not. <laughs> okay. Twitter or Facebook? Twitter. Periscope or YouTube? I'm not sure I follow. Pick which one. What do you prefer? Uh, YouTube. All right. I'm just paying attention to where Periscope is going. That's yeah. all. Uh, Pebble or Apple Watch? Neither. Vintage. What are you wearing now? Omega. Yes. Automatic. Did James Bond wear that one? Yes. Oh, there you go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> North. No, I, I'm. I'm in that regard. Yeah. I'm analog. You're analog. Yes. You're so behind. Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, nor- I, I refer to the uh, Apple Watch as the douchebag starter kit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I gotta I gotta write that down. That'll be in the show notes. Um, hold on, douchebag starter kit. <laughs> north of Bloor or south? I live north of Bloor. East of Young or west? East of Young. 
there's this whole debate about like neighborhoods and where the cool people are and you know I, I always not frustrated but you know blog to you should be called blog GTA. downtown or something <laughs> but it should like they don't yeah. cover stuff that's happening well, in Scarborough. see for me I uh, so I'm originally from Oshawa because of my work and interest in film I was coming to Toronto every weekend to see movies you couldn't see there I was coming mm. to see the foreign films coming to see the art house films coming to the Bloor Cinema etc uh, when I was in film school during the film festivals they would say don't be here at school go to the festival take it in for the 10 days interesting and a lot of those films were screened downtown as well as around Young and Eglinton yeah and um, my wife is, is from Toronto and um when we first got married, our apartment was at Young and Eglinton. You still uh, live in the area. And we still live in the yeah. area. And it was just coincidental. But we tell friends who uh, you know, live back in Oshawa or, or in, the, in the Burbs. Uh, and we lived in the Burbs for two years when I went back to school to do my MBA. So we've, we've had... Yeah. We can speak um, clearly about the, com- the, the um, similarities and differences. But here we are living in Davisville Village in Toronto, and although we live in the city, there are aspects of our neighborhood that feels like a small town. We know people. We see them at the school. We see them on the street. Sure. And our stretch of Bayview feels like a small town, Mm. which is unusual to say about a large city. When we lived in the suburbs, we didn't see people that were our neighbors. Everyone drove everywhere. Mm -hmm. There was no foot traffic to bump into people to say, hey, how are you? It's very interesting. It happens the way in, cities are designed yeah. and the suburbs are designed. Mm-hmm. Um, East Coast or West Coast? Uh, I've, I've never been t- down East. Wow. I've been uh, to the West Coast, um, but more the West Coast of the U.S. Uh, because of work. Ah. Uh, I would have to say um, Europe. <laughs> <laughs> Dogs or cats? Dogs. Dogs. Okay, here's a political one. The hybrid option or tear down the gardener? Uh, I was just talking about uh, this with my mother-in-law. It doesn't matter what I think because no one will be happy. No one will be happy. I mean, basically, in something that major, yeah, someone there will always be losers. And in some ways, we all will because it will be no matter what is decided upon, it will be over budget and and take too long to do. Whatever it is, <laughs> whatever it is, that is so true. <laughs> Although I, I I think a Toronto with a beautiful. Um, Waterfront. Waterfront uh, is much better, and and it, it just seems in my mind when I picture a beautiful waterfront, I don't picture a a high an elevated highway. Right, there. but I will say there are times that the Gardner Expressway gets me where I need to be. Uh, <laughs> although I, I must tell you, I I you know if 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 I was a Christian, I'd be doing the cross every time I go on that <laughs> because it's like, is this the day that it falls or whatever? Well, and I get scared I, walking under that thing too. I w- worked or I live just south of Bayview in Eglinton, and Eglinton now mm-hmm. is with the light rail. Yeah, is under construction and will be for years to come. Yeah. Uh, and it will be the most developed street in Canada when it's done. Mm. And so, um, yes, it will mean my house will be worth more, but the hell that it's going to put us through over the coming years. And I was coming in from the Don Valley Parkway the, uh, this afternoon. I had to find an alternative route yeah. because I looked and went, I'll be in that row of cars for 20 minutes or yeah. more. And I that, hear you. That's here in the city. Let's end this off, and I hope you're prepared for this last one, because okay. I remember we were trying to do this show months ago, and I asked you a question, and you gave me an answer. So start. I hope you know what I'm going to ask you, because I okay. want you to start thinking. Um, we have a tradition on the show. It's, 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 five, it's now five episodes long, this tradition, right. um, on, on playing some music at the end of the show. So I want to ask you this, and we'll end it off here. Uh, what's currently your favorite song? Or what's playing on your on your iPod or in your oh, uh, device now? So that really like? uh, it was from a Nike commercial, and it was I think it was um, "Jungle" by is it uh, the X Commandments? I don't know. Um, anyway, it was, uh, it's it's a fantastic song. If you're uh, so, I ride my bike for exercise. So mm-hmm. if you if you like workout music, it's fantastic for that. And when I go to the gym as well, um, it's a great sort of ride. Rocking Out tune. Um, also like the Black Crows for working out, but I think it's uh, Jungle. It was featured in a Nike commercial. Black Crows, that's way back. Yeah, I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> that's when rock and roll, I remember rock and roll had like piano. I remember they had a, a, a nice piano in that band. Oh, they, they had everything. Yeah, that's true. But, you know, I've, um, 
my musical tastes are run pretty broad. So, awesome. Andrew, thanks so much for stopping by. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Broad. So. Awesome.